Welcome to episode 24 of Cyberbytes the Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cooper, co-founder of Aspron Search. Today's guest, we have Adam Bateman, CEO at Push Security. Having started his career in a purely offensive security role, he later switched and established MWR's defense practice, defending their customers against sophisticated adversaries and state-sponsored attacks. Now having founded Push with Tyrone and Jax, he spills the beans on all things SASAP security. How are you, mate? Hey man, good, thank you. Thanks for the invite. Looking forward to the conversation. No, likewise, mate. Likewise. Um, how you been? Really good. Yeah, really good. Where, where are you based again? I'm down in Bournemouth. I'm uh, I'm originally from Kent, but I relocated to Bournemouth when COVID hit. So uh, I now live by the seaside and go on to beach That's... walks and all mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Whereabouts are you? Cool. Just outside of London. So look for the I used to uh, I used to live in Bournemouth, so Oh really? <laughs> well, you know how great it is. It's a lovely part of the world. It's great. It's yeah, fantastic. Awesome. Um well listen, brother. Um great thanks for coming on. Um was first of all keen to find out how InfoSec went. I saw you uh, you had a a booth there. I hope you didn't spend the the full fifteen mil series A. <laughs> how was InfoSec <laughs> this year? It was really good, actually. It's the first time we've exhibited as Push. So, you know, when you're in early stage, you just sort of try lots of different things out. But it was super good. Yeah, we it was really worthwhile. So we're actually exhibiting at Black Hat as well uh, in a couple of months. So, yep. yeah, definitely do it again next it's year. A, for sure. It's actually next month. Jesus. Um, Black Hat's next okay. month. Yeah, where's the time going? We'll be flying in as well for that. Um, parachuting in three nights and then getting out of there. Um, I was there for 10 days last year and that was just way too long in Vegas, but did have some fun. Yeah, yeah. 10 days is a long stretch, especially yeah. in the summer in the, in the desert. It was, mate, it was. But um, listen, Adam, with all my guests, take it right back to, to where it all began, mate, and how you got into the industry and then we can talk about push afterwards. Yeah, happy to. So you know, I find it hard to remember when I wasn't in security, at least from a ho- hobby perspective. So if I take it kind of right back, probably started, you know, early teenage years. So um, when I got into industries, first of all, like now it's very, there's lots of courses and books and there's like a real community around it. But when I started, it just wasn't like that. It was very, it was kind of people were writing little blog articles and you were just figuring stuff out on your own. So you really had to have that kind of hacker mindset, you know. So there were definitely communities like on IRC and places like that, but they were kind of stealthy and you could only get into them if you could contribute something so the beginning of it had to be just figuring out your way and then getting to one of these communities and sharing something and then you could come in and then you could learn from other people and so um I'm making myself sound really old here i'm like still in my 30s just for the record <laughs> why i am but but yeah it was kind of the time when you, know, you had like 56k dial-up modems and they were you know, the ones that were really noisy and they'd actually dial up and go and connect to the internet. And so early teenage years and it just used to do stuff that was all about like, how can you figure out how this kind of really interesting, thrilling hacking game works while staying on the right side of the law? So we just used to do stuff like friends and I about just reverse engineering like desktop games and find ways to kind of create like cheat codes so you could change the score on it, you know, like harmless things like that. And things I mentioned the dial up modem because one of the things we figured out was that the actual software that dialed up and connected to the internet at the time would dictate your plan. So some plans would be pay per minute and other ones would be like free till six. And we figured that you could like reverse engineer the software and you could change it and then you could get like unlimited access to the internet. Um, and one of the cool things that we did there as well was like um, some of the really early 
mobile phones you know top up you top them up with yeah. credit and then you can use them for a period of time and i don't know why the carrier decided to make this as a design decision but the credit was actually stored on the phone itself rather than on the carrier and so we kind of figured out that you could pull the phone apart and you could solder like a chip into the board and you could kind of write a hex code onto the chip and have it so the phone would just top itself back up again right so it's all these kinds of things where it was uh just like just finding stuff out and just figuring things, like scanning the internet, just seeing what was out there and always keeping it within ethical realms, but just uh, just exploring, basically. Love how you got that disclaimer in there as uh, always within ethical realms. Love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you was tinkering from a young age then. So did you go to uni or was it straight into to, to work or? Yeah, so, well, I mean, my friends, they're not like at all surprised that I'm now the founder of a security company because... I've always had this 50-50 split between being a builder and being a breaker. Like breaking mm -hmm. is in hacking stuff and building is in just love making stuff from nothing and seeing things thrive. And so even in, in that same era, like I was sort of hacking by night and then by day I was doing things like building websites and for like local businesses. So I'd go knock on the door of places that had bad websites and be like, here's a better one, you know? So I had this split for a whole time and I've always taken that um, kind of 50-50, you know, two yeah. lives basically and uh actually when i went to university i didn't go and do like a computer science course you know like a really mathematics heavy low level c coding type course i was doing that kind of stuff in my own time but the course i did was like a business it course in bournemouth which is why yeah so um and so this course was it was lots of coding but it was kind of how you applied it to the real world and a few years into the course one of the things that happened was that there was a competition and what we had to do is get together as a team of like five or six of us and it was a really aggressive timeline where we had to build a kind of business right so it had a brand and it had like a, it had a, an app and a website and all these different things and we had to go and pitch so we went to pitch in this competition to a series of judges and we won uh, which is really cool so anyway the reason i say this is because the the prize from that, among other things, was a membership to the kind of National Computing Society. And I remember I got given this brochure and I'd flick through the brochure and there was like this hacking course in there and with a, you know an offer discount to it through this membership scheme. And I was like, wow, like, this is an actual hacking course. This is kind of crazy. So I was in uni at the time, like just coming up to the placement year and I actually saved up and went on that course and when I um, went on the course, because of the fact that I had that kind of hacking background, I got offered a job by the company uh, because, you know, I, I kind of did all right on the exam and everything else. And that was my break into the industry. And so I ended up doing a placement year before graduating. And that was really my first step where I uh, really got into it changed gear for me where I, I really got into the kind of you know, offensive security practitioner, ethical hacker side. And so we yeah. were, you know, then it was like, okay, you know, I've got permission now to go and, and break into stuff. And you still stay obviously in ethical realms, but you're much more free to explore very big networks of major companies. So it was a really cool, uh, yeah, it was a, just a really cool phase yeah, of my career. How, um, how close, like, it must be difficult as a kid tinkering around and like getting really close to that line where it is, oh, this is unethical. Like, how difficult is it to like keep within that line? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, I think about a lot of that stuff is about intent, right? It's kind of, you can like scan and you can explore and you can find things but it's about what you do with it. And I think that's mm. always the difference with stuff. I mean, even if you're a professional 
you know, professional ethical hacker or offensive security practitioner or whatever you want to call it, even then, like what you do is you go to a particular line, even though you have permission, you will go out and you'll find a vulnerability and you'll go to the point where you'll prove to yourself and to the customer that it is exploitable. But you mm. won't actually go and delete their database, right? Where that actually won't happen. And so that's the thing. It is a kind of, it's a kind of gray area, but these days, like you've got things like OSCP, right? Like great hacking courses that have got built-in labs you can go and play with and you can do all that sort of stuff. So I'd say later on in my uh, career, as I carried on practicing, a lot more of these sorts of things came out, whether these online labs that you could play with, and it was way easier just to sort of go for it and learn a lot of the techniques. Yeah, nice, nice. So obviously out of university placement year, then join this company. Is that MWR? Is that where you stayed for 10 years or... No, so the, this first uh, company, I actually then joined MWR after I after, graduated. Okay. Yeah, and they were based, and it was just, I heard about MWR. They were like very different to anywhere else in the industry because mm. they were much more, they're basically research-led. Yeah. And there's so many smart people that work in that company. I mean, it just really, really special company. I, yeah. And I joined, I think I was employee number 14 or 15 or something. And by the time... The company was sold to F Secure, and I think it was 2008. We were about 400 people, and so I was really part of that journey for about 11 years, helping grow and build that company. And that was like the majority of the career. Like we we were working with some of the most sophisticated security teams, like biggest banks in the industry, doing offensive security, and that's where things changed gear. So even then, right, I went through being a pen tester. And then as I built up, I started leading teams and I started building more service. So even through that career, I had that split between doing a yeah. bit of both. But, you know, as a team, we were putting together like eight person teams and we were doing these like long term red team engagements where we'd simulate kind of persistent threats effectively. And we'd be given a goal by the customer and say, look, you've got this timeline, you've got this objective, go for it. Like We want to test our security out and just really, really cool Uh really yeah, nice. cool phase that's career. probably a part two where we can talk a little bit around some of the red team exercises some of the war stories yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah some case studies but um after i guess look, we'll, we'll save that for another time um so obviously look you the sale of uh, mwr to f secure i think it was 2018 wasn't it not 2008 i think so but 2018 yeah, yeah, yeah. So i was gonna say you're showing your age now um <laughs> 2018 and then so when did push come about how did the the vision inspiration how did uh, push security come about because you founded with a couple of chaps from uh that you worked with at mwr right exactly that yeah so some of the early uh early core team members were colleagues that i had from mwr all of us had been in the offensive security side and then all of us in our own way had flipped over onto the defensive side and so we'd help doing like kind of i guess virtual CISO roles and um, actually, I had one of your other guests podcasting, Tyler Young, who I know. Yep. Uh, he was mentioning about when you're um, a consultant, you get to see the security of lots and lots of different companies, like ones that are really good, ones that do it bad, it's people with high budgets, people with low budget, and you get this really broad perspective. And so actually, all three of the co-founders, um, myself and uh, Tyron and Jacques, we had, you imagine between collectively between three of us, we'd seen a lot of different stuff mm. about how things should, should go so we just knew that there were so many problems out there now a lot of companies when they start they pick a problem and say look okay you know i want to go solve this problem but we actually weren't like that i'm hyper passionate about building a really awesome company like 
culture, brand, meaning, purpose is really important to me. And so we just like went, look, chapter two, we all work really well together. Let's go for it. Let's go and build something really cool. And we actually just left and started. And the idea behind Push was the industry is full of it's really good at finding problems like you do detection we do vulnerability scanning and it gives you this big to-do list of stuff to do there's not enough people that actually fix the problem so we wanted to focus really on just building something really cool that would actually focus on the fix and take problems away so push was about push security forward yeah, and kind yeah. of um and go from from that perspective so yeah so we we kind of came out with this the type of company and the meaning first and then we started to explore. And one of the things that then happened was, you know, we we decided basically to focus on SaaS security because that's very, <laughs> you know, it's like kind of the way the world's going. Yeah. yeah. How, so the, how big is the the SaaS security problem though? Like SaaS apps and their use. And so I was looking at some stats and I was like, wow, like 80% of workers, have, they actually admit to downloading apps and that they shouldn't have by IT and like just some mad stuff is like is this such a is this a huge problem yeah it's a it's a crazy big problem and i think i think a lot of people don't r- realize kind of how big a problem it mm. is and it's growing um and and really it's because it caught people off guard like the problem accelerated since the pandemic when everyone started to work remotely uh so really the premise around like i mean first of all understanding right if, if I talk about SaaS security, SaaS means something different to everyone. And most people's brains go to the big SaaS, like, for example, Google Workspace, Office 365, maybe Salesforce is in there. And there are a lot of solutions on the market that will do deep integrations with those and keep those safe. And that's very, very valuable. And that's really important. But what we really focus on is there are 30,000 SaaS applications which are spread out across the internet you can think like Postman for doing API development, even things like DocuSign. And they're just coming on all the time. And all of these applications, employees can freely sign up to, put company data into, and that's there available for compromise. And this really gives a big headache for um, IT and security teams. So what used to happen was that IT and security were the first step in the process when it came to procuring software, right? So what would happen is if a, somebody in the company like say the finance department wanted a new bit of software they would go and ask procurement it security if they could uh, they could do that and it would go through all the risk assessments it would make sure it ticked all the compliance boxes it would then get plugged into like sso and then employees would get onboarded now the world's gone very very self-service and so employees will just sign up on their own and the statistics say yeah, that like 80% of people do this without telling IT or security at all. And so they'll sign up, put company data into those um, apps. Yeah. And often IT and security don't even like know about it in the first place. So you end up with this kind of SaaS sprawl problem, which really adds to the company's attack surface. Yeah, mental. Absolutely mental. So you, you, you mentioned like the 80% thing, but are you actually doing your own research or data collection? Are you still doing any of that sort of stuff? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a ton of, um, there's a ton of research. I mean, loads of different stats out there about employees, but the the bit that we're looking at is because of our red team heritage, we started to think to ourselves, like if you you take push as an example, we are a networkless company and it's kind of crazy to think about this paradigm, right? Because we came from this world of being pen testers and you're just breaking into networks all the time. And, um, and 
when we started push it was like a completely new paradigm because we are just a load of laptops with about 100 SaaS applications and nothing in between right every we don't even have an office so for us like there is not a single device on the network and that is that's really the company and that is how modern startups look so originally mm -hmm. when we built push we built it for helping that type of company but we got dragged very very quickly up into very large companies because obviously big companies are trending in that way and so they might not be, they're not going to 100% get rid of the network, but a massive percentage of their company is now, are now kind of SaaS applications. So anyway, so we were, um, we started off by building out a solution to help people to sort of discover, uh, be able to like manage access to these different things. And, and as part of our red team routes, we thought, you know, hey, wouldn't it be fun to start thinking about how would you attack a company like this that didn't have a network? And so we've been working on an active research project, which um, is kind of pre-release. I can't talk in too much yeah, detail yeah. about now, but we're hoping to launch this before Black Hat. So you can grab hold of that and just get the ways it would work. So there are really obvious things, for example, like credential stuffing. It's like a huge issue. Employees share credentials across loads of different stuff. They use the same password over and over again. Yeah. And so we've seen sometimes like when people have sort of deployed the platform, they see things like, you know, leaked that you know they've signed up to like a, an old service like adobe and their password has been subject to a breach and therefore leaked on the internet an attacker not necessarily even manually but automatically will take that and then spray it across every other of the thirty thousand SaaS applications to see what they get access to now they're really obvious things like gaining access to like LastPass or one password which means you've got a whole database of creds to start going to other places but actually, there are kind of some really interesting things that we found that like you can even break into kind of trivial apps and then use that to elevate your access. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because in the pen testing world, security practitioners think a lot about the key assets inside their company. So if you have an internal network and you have a Windows domain, the domain controller is like king of the castle. Like that's the thing you want to defend because it's going to give you keys to the kingdom and give you access to everything else and mm -hmm. probably your file server that exists on it. But the thing that gets you owned is always the little dev server that doesn't get given attention when it comes to security. And if you pop that, you can steal the password hashes out of it and spray those across the network and gain access to everything else. Right? Even true from in the, the early 2000s when it was all about online attack surface. So protect your website and your VPN endpoint, but it's always the dev server on the side that gets you compromised. And it's very much the same with SaaS, right? So you should definitely defend your core O365 and Google Workspace. But if you, for example, did something simple, like compromised something like a wiki or something that had free text, and then you could just like run a script, which kind of backdoors um, a load of links. Now, when an employee signs in, they're very used to their login session timing out and leaving so they could click on a link and then you can actually redirect them off to for example like a fake sso login screen and steal their credentials right it's a kind of basic attack but when you think about it the thing that's interesting is those SaaS applications are part of the trusted infrastructure and so what i think is coming from this what we've determined is coming from this is it's possible within the SaaS world to have hyper realistic phishing um exercises which, you know, even the security team would fall for, if you said to me, like, if you if you just logged into the same wiki or the same free text platform you used every day and you just clicked a link and it went, oh, it's redirected me to this login page. You enter your credentials, 
and off you go. And now I can actually use that to leverage the access and get wider access in and across the company. Right? So those sorts of things. There's a whole load of techniques which we've uh, we've been looking at, but just really in, been a really interesting bit of research. Yeah, real scary, mate, when you put it into perspective. But um, moving on from that, then, how important do you think it was founding with two guys that you knew before? Like, how, how's that journey been? Yeah, I mean, Jock and Tyron, we've been working together for about a decade, and we just bring three complete like we're, we're similar enough that we see the world in the same way, but different enough that we complement each other. Personally, I think founder relationship is one of the most important considerations when you start a company. I can't remember the statistics now, but I remember when we first started, um, you look at the reasons that startups fail and it's high up there, like you know, friction between the founders. And I, I think being with culture being really important, if you get that bit wrong, then it really stems down all the way through the company. So for me, it's you know one of the most important things and it's been it's been really great. It was a great decision. Yeah, amazing. When you're, because I know you, when we spoke off off air, you you mentioned about you're keeping a very lean team rather than focusing on headcount growth. What? Why is that specifically? Yeah, great question. So we um, we bootstrap the start of push, and one of the things that we wanted to do is we noticed from building technology in the past that there's this whole thing around technical debt. And the thing with technical debt is you can go blazingly fast and you can build a product and get features out really, really quickly. But at some point, you're going to pay that technical debt off. And what happens if you leave it for such a long time is that eventually you end up in a position where you kind of have, um, all you're doing is focusing on performance and maintenance and fixes rather than innovation. And so what we wanted to do with Push is we came out and we, we didn't, when you take investor money, like the clock starts ticking to grow. And so we had the opportunity to sort of bootstrap. We kept our lives very, very lean. And we laid these really great foundations into the bottom of the company that allowed us to really build scale off the top of it. So we talk a lot about in our culture, like we want to build a small but mighty team. And so like loads of stuff is automated inside Push already because of that early round that we did and it really sets us up. Now, one of the things that we do, like talking about culture is um we uh, like i track a would-be office budget right so rather than just going well we're an officeless company we're all remote great we've saved money what i do is actually track what it would cost and then we invest that back into the culture so like you know a few months ago the whole company we all went to africa on safari and we just hung out for the week right and it was it was really cool experience we all got together for the first time and I think by keeping a small, lean team, you you can do more of that, right? You can you yeah, can kind of do that sure. um, rather than just sort of fixing it by having lots and lots of numbers and lots of people doing lots of things. Yeah, nice. When did you then think about taking it from bootstrap to 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 think about raising some money? When, when did that point come into the the journey? Uh, so we did our seed round with Desa Power Partners, who are great yep. partner for us. They so invest in like. Um, uh, similar like run zero and uh and some others like uh, other security companies as well and yeah it was basically just that i think we always knew that we were going to go and need to raise but we just wanted to we, we did a lot of the customer discovery side on our own dime and then went out afterwards and i think when we realized how big the problem was and how big the opportunity was and we got our early customers and we got that validation 
we were like, okay, now's the time. Like we need to go out and 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 do this and and do it properly. So we went out to uh, to raise raise then um, and just yeah, really accelerate the product at that point. Yeah, amazing. What what's next for for push, Adam? What what's the, obviously you've got your research coming out. You've got Black Hat next month. Like what what's the future hold for push? So we we did our Series A. We announced at the beginning of the year with uh, Google Ventures, as you as you saw. Yeah. So we've really just, you know, we've been in a position where we've come out of that phase where we've built the product, we've, you know, gained traction in the market, we've got some great customers from really small companies up to large enterprises, we've got that whole spectrum, we've seen the problems, we've got a very, very clear vision of what's happening, we're getting lots of feedback from our early customers. So now it's all about commercialization and scale. So we're just um, at this stage now with the Series A, we're just going out and just, you know, just getting it out and into the hands of as many customers as we possibly can, building up brand and awareness and, and everything else. So, Brother, I wish you all the best of success, mate. This is a really exciting part of uh, Push and I wish you all the best. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks man. for Appreciate coming on. It. Thanks, mate. Take care. Perfect.